evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Another delay in New York's probe into former President Trump. The grand jury is on standby for a possible decision tomorrow with an apparent divide in reactions between Republicans in the House and Senate. The Federal Reserve forges ahead with its interest rate hikes, despite recent bank failures. How that might affect banking, the banking sector and the lives of everyday Americans. Senators press the CEO of Moderna on issues with the company's COVID-19 vaccine. Find out what he said about the quadrupled price and the side effects. The United States military's recruitment struggles have caused many to be concerned. Find out what military leaders are blaming the problem on and how they plan to fix it. And we look at new questions amid changing financial conditions after President Biden vetoed a bill this week impacting millions of Americans' retirement plans. A decision on whether New York will indict former President Donald Trump is delayed again. Republicans in the House and Senate are responding slightly differently. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more from Capitol Hill. So there is slightly different messaging coming from Republicans in the House versus the Senate over the possibility of a Trump indictment, with House Republicans being quick to call this a politically motivated prosecution, while Senate Republicans have been a bit more mild on the issue. But I do want to note that there has been unity around the messaging that the New York District Attorney's priorities are questionable, for example, lacking the much-needed attention on local crime and instead prioritizing this Trump case. And while the House Oversight Committee has uh, been quick to question the legitimacy of the New York District Attorney's case against former President Trump, we asked Senate Republican Whip John Thune if he believes that the House's quick action here is justified. Here's what he said. The House is going to handle matters their way. Questions are being asked by a lot of our members, and for that matter, people all across the country, about the prioritization of uh, this DA of this issue over what are very current and real um, law enforcement issues in their city. And this strikes a slightly different tone than what we've heard from House Republicans regarding this Trump case. For example, here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's take on it. I look at it from this perspective. We live in America and it should be equal justice. Um, This was personal money. I wasn't trying to hide. This was seven years ago, statute of limitation. And I think in your heart of hearts, you know, too, that you think this is just political. And I think that's what the rest of the country thinks. And we're kind of tired of that. And House Republicans are in a different spot than Senate, than Senate Republicans because they do have the ability to launch a probe into this, into the prosecution, because they do hold the majority, whereas Senate Republicans do not have that ability because Democrats are in control in the Senate. As for how Senate Democrats are responding, well, they're actually taking a more mild approach themselves. I asked Senate Leader Chuck Schumer, who's from New York himself, his take on it. Here's our exchange. Some are kind of saying that this is Democrats' just political attack on Trump. What is your response to that? Look, I think, I think it's premature sure to talk about it. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen yet. And there was some news floating around about the possibility of a decision of, on a Trump indictment to be made today. But the New York District Attorney told the grand jury not to come. So that grand jury will return again tomorrow where we will be once again awaiting this decision on the Trump case that so many are watching closely and waiting for. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. 
And speaking of Trump, a federal appeals court today rejected Trump's bid to shield his lawyer's records from special counsel Jack Smith. The records have to do with the discovery of national security documents at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate last year. The ruling means that the Justice Department can circumvent Trump's attorney-client privilege. A three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals handed down the ruling. And the central bank hiked rates once again. That's despite speculation that it would take a pause to relieve pressure on the financial sector, which has just seen multiple historic bank failures. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Inflation remains too high. Despite a recent turmoil in the banking sector, the Federal Reserve on Wednesday rolled out another rate hike, this time by a quarter of a point. Without price stability, the economy does not work for anyone. The latest move brings the federal funds rates to the highest level since 2007. It's especially significant as it comes even though the aggressive rate hikes have put the banking industry under pressure, as higher rates would push down the value of bonds that banks purchased when their rates were low. The Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell insisting that the banking system is sound and resilient with strong capital and liquidity. And the White House, while refraining from commenting on the Fed's race decision, doubles down on Powell's take on the banking sector. And it defends President Biden's economic policies, despite the fact that Americans are still paying $371 more every month due to stubborn inflation. Inflation is still too high. Does the president agree? Look, the president has always said that he's going to do everything that he can to make sure uh, that uh, uh, we work uh, every day to lower costs. The latest rate hike is putting pressure on Americans from both sides. People are facing inflation at the grocery store while having to pay more for their credit card interest and mortgages. But for the first time in a while, the Fed statement on Wednesday did not explicitly refer to any future rate increases, which could be a signal that its consecutive heights are nearing an end. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. Norfolk Southern CEO responded today to a Senate committee's push for tougher railway safety regulations. This comes after the fiery train derailment last month that spilled toxic chemicals around a nearby town. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw was apologetic on Wednesday as he addressed the Senate Commerce Committee for the second time in two weeks. I want to open by stating how deeply sorry I am for the impact this derailment has had on the citizens of East Palestine and the surrounding communities. Shaw is under pressure to strengthen his commitment to tougher safety measures after last month's fiery derailment on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. The derailment prompted a bipartisan response from Senators Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, who proposed the Railway Safety Act of 2023 in early March. At a previous hearing, Shaw stated that he was committed to taking steps to improve safety, but he didn't endorse the act. This time, he said he was determined to make this right. Norfolk Southern continues to make good on its promise to clean the site safely, thoroughly, and with urgency. You have my personal commitment that we will get the job done and we we will help these communities thrive. Democrat Senator Amy Klobuchar asked Shaw if he supported the bill. Yes, there are many provisions within the Vance Brown bill for which we give our full-throated endorsement. But he couldn't give full endorsement to some of the key provisions, such as requiring all trains to operate with at least a two-person crew. The CEO has been criticized for cutting costs and reducing the number of employees, which allegedly has resulted in an increased accident rate. 
Ohio sued Norfolk Southern last week over the derailment that released over a million gallons of hazardous materials and pollutants around the town of East Palestine. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine said residents were concerned for their future. Some residents have told me about their bloody noses, their rashes, their coughs that they had developed, while others who don't have symptoms now ask, what's going to happen to me in 10 or 15 years? What's going to happen to my children? Shaw said in a written statement that he has already taken steps to enhance safety consistent with a preliminary report from the National Transportation Safety Board. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And staying on Capitol Hill, Moderna's chief executive faced intense scrutiny today in the Senate. Lawmakers pressed the CEO on issues with the company's COVID-19 vaccine. Moderna CEO Stefan Poncel testified before the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor and Pensions on Wednesday. The pharmaceutical company recently announced that it will nearly quadruple the price of their COVID-19 vaccine to $130 per dose when the shot goes into the commercial market. The vaccine costs around $26 per dose under government procurement. Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders asked Boncel to reconsider the decision. A company that would not have developed this vaccine without the help of the taxpayers of this country now comes before the public and says, oh, by the way, we want to quadruple prices. So the price is not linked to the company's performance. The price is linked to the value of a product to the patient and to the impact on the patient. That's how we set price. Demand is expected to drop by 90 percent once the vaccine enters the private market later this year. Senators also brought up concerns about a $400 million royalty payment that Moderna made to federal regulators who are also responsible for approving and recommending the vaccine. Other lawmakers focused on the vaccine's adverse side effects. Senator Rand Paul pressed Boncel on whether there's a rise in myocarditis among young men who took the Moderna vaccine. The data I've shown actually, I've seen, sorry, from the CDC actually shown that there's less myocarditis for people who get the vaccine versus who get COVID infection. You're, you're saying that for ages 16 to 24 among males who take the COVID vaccine, their risk of myocarditis is less than people who get the disease. That is my understanding. That is not true. And I'd like to enter into the record six peer-reviewed papers from the Journal of Vaccine, the Annals of Medicine that say the complete opposite of what you say. I also spoke with your president just last week, and he readily acknowledged in private that, yes, there is an increased risk of myocarditis. The fact that you can't say it in public is quite disturbing. Myocarditis is a form of heart inflammation that can lead to death. Diagnoses of myocarditis in the military jumped 130 percent in 2021, compared to the average from 2016 to 2020. This is according to newly disclosed data from the Defense Medical Epidemiology Database. The data was downloaded by a whistleblower and presented to Senator Ron Johnson. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And the United States military had one of its worst recruiting years in decades. And some see this as a major threat to national security. Now military leaders are in the hot seat to explain how they plan to fix it. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Members of the Senate Armed Services Committee wanted to know the root cause of the military's recruiting shortage and how to fix it. Last year, the force fell tens of thousands of recruits short of its goals, and the same appears likely this year. 
Senator Jack Reed explained that the Department of Defense conducted a survey last year to find out why young Americans were not interested in joining the military. By a wide margin, the top three reasons the respondents cited were the same across all the services. Fear of death or injury, worries about PTSD, and separation from friends and family. But Undersecretary of the Army Gabe Camarillo pointed to a bigger picture of what's behind the recruiting shortage. First of all is the labor market. So in periods of time historically where we have a really tight labor market and low unemployment, regardless of pitch, it can be very challenging in terms of facing recruiting headwinds. But Senator Eric Schmidt blamed part of the shortage on the mandatory diversity, equity and inclusion training in the military. It is naive to believe that this is not divisive among recruits or people in the military. We have heard from members of the military who've said that they resent being subjected to this. This sort of obsession with this equity agenda that you all are defending here today with just sort of a word salad is, is, is divisive. Senator Roger Wicker said that according to a survey that measured exposure to extremism in the military, there were only 100 reported cases of extremism service-wide, less than 0.1% of the military. He says the military is addressing a problem that doesn't exist. Where is the same urgency of the Department of Defense when it comes to the very real recruiting crisis? Where is the recruiting strategic plan? Sergeant Major of the Army Michael Grinston testified earlier in the month that service members get one hour of equal opportunity training in basic training and one hour in one station unit training. Camarillo explained what the Army is doing to help solve the recruiting shortage. And a number of efforts to improve how we attract people to the recruiting workforce, where we station them, how we train them, in addition to surge of marketing and advertising, other incentives for people to join. Jason Perry, NTD News. Satellite carrier Direct TV has reached a multi-year distribution agreement with conservative channel Newsmax. It brings an end to an ugly public dispute between the two companies. For months, Newsmax chief executive Chris Ruddy accused Direct TV of unfair anti-conservative censorship. When announcing the new deal, Ruddy said Direct TV, quote, clearly supports diverse voices, including conservative ones. Neither company disclosed details about the agreement. Newsmax had sought millions of dollars from DirecTV to broadcast the network's programming. You may be wondering about the status of your savings amid recent changes as pertains to inflation, a small number of banks collapsing, and President Biden's first bill veto earlier this week. The veto means that some pension fund managers still have the option to invest retirees' money according to environmental and social justice criteria. Today, we'll dig into some of the questions you may have with Epic Times business reporter Kevin Stocklin. He also looks deeply at the ESG movement in his documentary, The Shadow State, and I spoke with him earlier today. Kevin Stocklin, thanks for coming on again. Now, Biden says the ESG rule that he vetoed would have put people's retirement savings at risk. The argument is that ESG factors, like natural disasters, say, could conceivably affect investments. How do you see Biden's reasoning here? Yeah, well, I think it's it's really important for people to understand what's going on with this fight. And if I could give just a very quick background 
All of this turns on a law called ERISA. It's the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And this law was passed in the 70s uh, regarding pension funds. And it was passed because all sorts of mismanagement and fraud was going on with people's pension money. We had the mob, um, Jimmy Hoffa, using things like Teamsters pension funds to lend money to themselves and buying homes in Florida. So the whole reason that this law was first passed was to say, if you are managing people's pension money, you have the highest standard of fiduciary care, and you can only invest it for monetary reasons to maximize their return. And what Biden has done effectively is said you now can also consider environmental and social justice components when you invest people's pension money. And, and that is really what this whole fight turns on. So Biden uh, justifies this, and he, he would have us believe that ESG uh, is a risk management tool that is going to enhance investment returns. Uh, his timing is a bit off, unfortunately, because uh, the CEO of Vanguard, um, asset management, one of the largest asset managers, came out in February and said that there is no positive effect from ESG investing that they can see, according to their research. The chief investment officer of State Street testified in December to the uh, Texas State Senate the very same thing, no uh, tangible benefit from ESG investments. And on top of that, we now have studies from Harvard, from Columbia, from the London School of Economics that say not only do ESG factors not enhance returns, they actually hurt returns. Prior to its collapse, Silicon Valley Bank earned top ESG governance scores. It's been criticized for focusing on ESG at the expense of its fiscal responsibilities. How do you see it? Yeah, well, so uh, anyone can just take a look through their recent 10K filings that they have to file with the SEC. So it was very obvious in 2022 and 2023 that they were in a very precarious management position. Their portfolios were illiquid. They were heavily invested in um, fixed income securities that had lost a lot of value. And yet, they spent three, three full paragraphs talking about their exposure to climate risk and temperature change. Obviously, a diversion uh, of management to be pursuing these sort of goals, these ESG goals, instead of focusing on their, their core business issues. Some people may want to be able to choose to risk their investments to support ESG goals. Is there anything wrong with providing that option, do you think? No, absolutely not. If, if, if you want to use your retirement money to pursue uh, political or social justice causes, you're absolutely free to do that. And there's nothing that, that should limit or constrain people from doing that. Um, my point is, at least be honest with people if they're going to do that. Don't lead them to believe that these investments are good for their returns, that they're actually going to you know, produce more money for them as a risk management tool when they go to retire. Um, that is a myth. And one other thing that I might point out, the chief, the former chief investment officer of BlackRock, um, one of the most progressive asset managers and the largest, has come out and said that there's no evidence that ESG investing actually helps the environment or helps social justice causes. So for people who make that choice, you may just be sending more money to asset managers on Wall Street in the form of higher management fees. Could all Americans simply move their savings to a fund that aligns with their values or choices? Are all retirement funds at risk of having ASG criteria applied? Right. So this law just applies to private pension funds. And, um, you know, you, you hopefully do have an option to invest in non-ESG causes with your pension money, but that really depends on the individual plan offered by your company, and, and I encourage everybody to look into that.
It was a bipartisan bill that made it all the way to the president's desk that he vetoed. How do you see this veto by Biden in the context of a potential 2024 run and an increasingly shaky financial system? Yeah, you know, what a rare event that you can get Republicans and Democrats to agree on something, and yet they agreed that, that this was something so egregious that they came together. You know, on the one hand, I, I encourage people to to learn about this issue, but a lot of this finance stuff happens, you know, behind the scenes, and it's fairly arcane, and not everyone understands what's going on. So, unfortunately, the effects of using ESG in people's pension money, if that reduces returns, will not be felt for 10 or 20 or 30 years until people actually go to retire and they realize that they don't have enough money. And you know, you may say, well, hey, if I'm just losing one or two percent to ESG investments, what's the big deal? The problem is, over time, um, that compounds and it makes a tremendous difference. One of the biggest factors when you invest for retirement or savings or anything else um, is the rate of return. And losing one or two percent a year when that accumulates over decades makes an enormous difference. And it could be the difference between people having enough money to retire comfortably or not. Kevin Stockland, business reporter at the Epic Times and host and producer of the Shadow State documentary. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, California can't catch a break. An early spring storm hit the state hard. We'll have details of the aftermath. And in baseball, Japan upset Team USA last night to win the WBC title. But how did Shohei Otani rally his teammates to do it? More on that and more coming up. On the second official day of spring, heavy rain and wind bring much destruction to California. The hurricane-like weather knocked down trees and power lines, cutting power to thousands of residents. The latest burst in heavy wind-blown rain and snow turned out of the Pacific into California on Tuesday. It triggered scattered floods and mudslides, uprooted trees, and left thousands of storm-weary residents under evacuation orders. Near the town of Boulder Creek in Northern California's Santa Cruz Mountains, residents were clearing roads with their own chainsaws and directing traffic through an entanglement of logs and power lines that were dragged to the ground. I've owned my property for 20 years. This is the first time I've had slides anywhere. Yeah. I've never seen it, and, uh, you know, it's just it's a lot of rain. Yeah. High wind warnings and advisories were posted for a vast area stretching from the Mexico border through Los Angeles to the San Francisco Bay Area. Winter storm warnings were in effect for high mountains with several feet of snowfall forecasted. I think in the 90s we had some that were like this. <sighs> But I think the trees are just bigger now and, and not handling the weight. And, you know, like this is the mountains. Like if you live in the mountains every 10 years or so, it's going to be hard. Sometimes really hard. Wind knocked down a big rig on the Bay Bridge, blocking traffic. Third Street Bridge can be seen swaying. San Francisco firefighters say the storm is wrecking havoc on Waymo autonomous vehicles, causing them to just stop on the road. The newest onslaught arrived early on the second official day of spring. Much of the storm was concentrated in Southern California, the state's central coast, and its agricultural heartland. An extremely rare tornado warning was issued for parts of Southern California near Thousand Oaks, 
The storm marks the 12th so-called atmospheric river to hit the U.S. West Coast since December. The National Weather Service also issued flood watches across a region of more than 17 million people, including most of greater Los Angeles and a large swath of western and central Arizona. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Two-way baseball star Shohei Otani rallied his Japanese teammates beforehand and then shut the door himself on a vaunted Team USA lineup last night as Japan won a thrilling World Baseball Classic finale. Otani, who was baseball's MVP in 2021 and finished runner-up last season while starring as both a pitcher and a hitter, told his teammates to, quote, stop admiring them. If you admire them, you can't surpass them. We came here to surpass them to reach the top. For one day, let's throw away our admiration for them and just think about winning. Then refers to Team USA and what's being called their billion-dollar lineup, highlighted by former MVP winners Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, and Paul Goldschmidt. Yet they were mostly silenced last night. On the other side, Otani batted third, but didn't start on the mound. Instead, he came on in relief in the ninth inning, with Japan up 3-2 and ended up striking out Team USA's best, three-time MVP Mike Trout, to secure the title. The championship for Japan is their third in five WBC tournaments. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has 10 games planned, featuring a Grizzlies-Rockets matchup that should feature the return of Memphis' all-star guard, Ja Morant. Morant has missed the last nine games while being suspended after live-streaming video of himself holding a gun while at a Denver-area nightclub back on March 4th. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL has just two games tonight. Leading scorer Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers hosting the Phoenix Coyotes while the Pittsburgh Penguins play at the streaking Colorado Avalanche, who've won their last six games. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. But stick around for China in Focus coming up at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time for a report on China's unrestricted warfare and EMP nuclear weapons and China's potential for putting America's power system in jeopardy. I'm Stephanie Cox. Until tomorrow night, good night.